0: question that probably often enough people wonder about is this Pasuk that the entire Egyptian army is willing to go into the sea to pursue the Jews how could that be? how could people do that? you so obviously see a miracle that. HaKodesh Boruch who is displaying on behalf of the Jews and yet they go into the sea and they're willing to to endanger their lives in pursuit of the Jews truth is hatred of the Jews is a very powerful emotion during World War II people have seen that basically Hitler almost drowned his armies in Jewish blood Just like, unfortunately, a little differently than the Egyptians, they drowned in the sea in their hatred of the Jews. Hitler, despite all the advice of his generals, in his single-minded pursuit of the extermination of the Jews, was unwilling to divert any of the trains, any of the transportation away from transporting the Jews to their deaths, even though his war effort was in sore need of it, especially towards the last years, from 1944 and on. That's the time when the machinery involved in the destruction of the Jews was working at its height. It was working at its greatest and most smoothly. But that's after D-Day and after all the the Russians were advancing. His generals said that we need the trains and we need the material that's involved in killing the Jews for the war effort. Hitler refused. His single-minded pursuit of his destruction of the Jews to his own detriment was such that even badly needed material and logistics were were devoted and diverted to the extermination of the Jews rather than to his war effort. To a certain extent, one could say, therefore, that his his single-minded desire to exterminate the Jews was so great and so overpowering that he actually drowned in Jewish blood. Give me some He drowned in Jewish blood. So perhaps one could understand the Egyptians the same way. I mean, even nowadays, you know, we find uh, people are saying how. Um, Yasser Arafat is being so foolish that he's like ruining his credibility and everything just because of his single-minded obsession but hatred of the Jews is therefore a very powerful emotion we saw it in Hitler, we see it in others and perhaps it could blindly lead hate is so blind, they say love is blind hate is even blinder and it could lead to this blindness of where they'll pursue the Jews into the Yam even to the point of, of their, own, their own destruction. That's maybe one lesson that you could learn from this, how blind hatred is that the Egyptians actually did such an obviously foolish thing. However, the Ramban adds another point to it. Let's take a look. At a piece from the Penine Das, on this posik, on the right side, right column, the second piece, the bottom piece. It's difficult to understand, to comprehend. How could they have done such a thing? They saw. How Hashem miraculously converts the sea to dry land. As Maison Nisan Begoli was an open, revealed miracle. How could they not have feared for their own lives? How could this be? V'ayin Brabant Shem asks another avi's kasha, Why was it that Hashem used the wind to split the sea? Ultimately, it says very clearly in the Pesach that they crossed the sea and the waters were like congealed on either side of them into walls, two walls of water. That was obviously a supernatural miracle. What's the point of the wind? certainly Hashem doesn't need to employ wind anyway to perform a miracle the Rambam's view on this the Rambam derives from this an important principle regarding miracles and others describe it as well namely that in general Hashem is is loath to break the laws of nature just wholesale breaking laws of nature and he tends to utilize forces of nature even to perform miracles. there's a principle of of being more low-key, even though it's trying to display the might the majesty of Hashem. But you display it anyway when you control nature. But the idea of just breaking the laws of nature so completely, this is a way of minimizing the damage that you're doing to nature. It's sort of like you build a house and you have to do a repair. So you don't just go with a sledgehammer and knock down the wall. You try to do it in a more controlled way. When you're breaking through a wall, what? Surgically. Surgically, yes, surgically. surgically. Well, it's like what they're doing right now. They're doing a repair in the room over there. They have to break down a wall. You're not going to knock down the whole building just to. You break it down in a more controlled way. Breaking the laws of nature to try to keep it as controlled as possible, and to minimize the damage to the laws of nature as much as possible—that's the general rule of all miracles, says the Rambam. The Rambam, though, here adds a different component: that the point of doing it through the wind was to make it look as if the wind is doing it. <speaking in Hebrew> they should perhaps think mistakenly that maybe it's a coincidence, it's an accident and the the wind did it and it wasn't the hand of God that did it, but it was rather a fortunate coincidence on behalf of the Jews just recently in the past century there was, uh, what's his name I uh, I forgot I read the guy's name, wrote a book a Russian scientist uh, in the 1920s and 30s he wrote two books one regarding the the flood and one regarding the miracles of the Exodus. No, no, I'm sorry, I think it was both regarding the miracles of the Exodus. It's just that no, maybe it was two books, one had to do with the flood. One of them was called World or Earth in Upheaval, and some other book like that. And in it he he says that uh basically and he predicted this in the nineteen twenties, that that the planet Venus is going to be much hotter than people think it is. Because at the time they thought it would be like the other planets, a cold planet. He says no. he believes that Venus was a new phenomenon that that happened in the more recent past and it didn't happen, whatever, millions of years ago. In fact, it happened during recorded human history that Venus became a planet and passed close to Earth and as a result produced upheavals in the world. And he then predicted also something about Mars, that Mars also came about later, 40 years later. And therefore he tries to pinpoint the time of these things at the time of the Exodus, and the Mars encounter 40 years later at the time of the entry of the Jews into Eretz at the time of Joshua. As a result, he said they were very fortunate coincidences, as um, venus came by it caused all of these plagues and it caused the miracle of the of the splitting of the sea he also explains how the mud came about because of this and the waters of the river turned blood and frogs came a result he explains all of the plagues and the splitting of the sea that the Jews were very lucky to be able to escape during this time and the Egyptians were unfortunately very unfortunate in drowning in pursuit of the Jews, but it was all part of a natural disaster. He therefore describes the the clouds of glory that surrounded the Jews as some kind of a, I don't know, fog or something, mist, the pillar of fire, because it glowed at night, and by day it was like a smoke-like something or other, and at night it was just a glowing of the of the cloud itself, and the mud was because in the atmosphere this stuff converts Into some sort of a carbohydrate or something like that, and you get this sweet mum coming as a result. I mean, going to the most ridiculous extremes scientifically. Ah, What's the name? Velikovsky. Velikovsky, yes, that's the name. Oh, so you heard about this book? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was a Russian scientist. And also, he says that's why when Mars had an encounter with Earth 40 years later on the more minimal level, That's why Mars became a god of war, because of these things. And a whole theory of history just to go through the improbable thing that it's not God, it was nature, and the Jews were fortunate. That people could actually, if they choose to look for something other than God, they'll find it. So the Egyptians were no different. God wanted to maintain the Egyptian free will. That if you are willing to try to ascribe something to it and you're out to get the Jews, oh, this was an accident, this was another accident, this was another one. Here they were in hot pursuit of the Jews. So could be this relates to my first point as well. Namely, as we saw a scene with Hitler. There are people over here that remember it as well. How how Hitler Yimashima was able to divert from his war effort to his mindless, blind hatred of the Jews to the extent of where, as we said, he drowned in Jewish blood. Just like Paul drowned also in the the sea in his hatred of the Jews. But if you combine blind hatred with you have a fig leaf on which to blame the thing that's not the hand of God but it's really the, um, the wind doing it, that's enough to retain their their sense of willingness to be able to fool themselves into doing what they're doing, says the Ramban. Therefore, and this again, we said earlier from the Rambam, another reason why Hashem used the wind. But these two reasons, in a way, complement each other. By doing this, it was able to mistakenly give the notion that it was the wind and it was not the Yad Hashem Bavor Yisroel Vafshena Ruach Bakiayam Lixarim. And yes, it doesn't make sense that the wind is going to make pathways in the sea, because it's unprecedented. But well, there's always a first time for everything. Yeah, the wind doesn't really split a sea and make water into walls. But who knows? Maybe this is the first time that it happens. They'll come up with some logical reason for it. This Vilo, what's his name? Belkovsky. He came up with some sort of a rationale as a scientist. The Egyptians were no different. What you see from this is a principle which we've said before. There's a half layupel of the This teaches us a lesson not only in philosophy and not only in science and in theology and in philosophy, but it teaches us a more important lesson in psychology, which is musr. The essence of musr is to understand the psychology of the human being what a person is capable of. I've said this many times maybe I'll coin it as a phrase, the heart or I would I say it differently the, the mind, the brain is the slave of the heart that's really what it is. The mind is the slave of the heart. It's like giving the example again, you have a court case or you're a businessman, a real estate person, you hire out the lawyers, and you tell them, this is what I want to do. Make sure that it's legally sound and logically, rationally justifiable. The hired hand, what is, what is the lawyer? The lawyer's job is to come up with some brilliant conclusion to prove that which I have a foregone conclusion. I mean, the dream team, as they call them, four great lawyers, um, how many of them were Jews at the time? Two of them, at least. OJ's dream team. He had uh, Johnny Cochran, that's a black guy. He had uh, an Italian guy, what's his name? Uh, Bailey. F.B. Bailey, right? And then he had uh, Shaq, what? Dershowitz. Dershowitz, right, Dershowitz and and, and uh, Shaq. Yeah. Two Jews, an Italian, and, and the black guy. And they were the dream team, the top lawyers. Doing what? You're starting off with the premise, OJ is innocent. Now go ahead and prove it. So you take the most brilliant minds to go prove the most ridiculous premise. Right? Everybody in the world knows that he's guilty. But their job is to prove him innocent. So you hire the most brilliant minds to produce the most ridiculous results. It's a foregone conclusion. And this is what you're hired out to do. You're in real estate, you have buildings, you have this, you have that, you have legal issues. You hire out lawyers to prepare for you briefs to determine a predetermined conclusion that you're hiring them out to do. It's the same thing. The brain and the mind are brilliant, but the heart is the boss. And the heart tells the mind, this is what I want you to do. I'm doing this, now go prove it that it's okay to do. Justify it. So the heart sits in control in most people. I mean, our job of course is that it shouldn't be that way. But the way it works for the majority of the world is that the heart is in control and it tells the brain what it wants it to do. Justify this. Therefore, the brain is the slave of the heart. And the heart decides what it wants to do. There is no God, now go ahead and prove it. This miracle is not from God. I don't want to destroy everything that we ever believed in go prove that it's just a coincidence. That's the way it works. The heart is in control, the heart is the boss, and the mind is merely its worker. It's an employee, like we always say, the A students work for the C students. Those guys that didn't make it in school academically become businessmen, and then they hire out those guys that were the uh, most brilliant students. So the A students wind up working for the C students. Or as someone said it better, the B students hire the A students to work for the C students. Right? Because the C student, on their own, can't recognize an A student, but he needs them. So he hires the B student, who is now in the managerial position to find the right A students to work for the big boss, the C student. But the C student, the guy didn't do so well in school, now has the business. He's in control. He's the boss. He can't find the most brilliant mindset. So he hires the B students for mid-managerial physicians who then go find the A students to work for the C students. Same thing, the heart is the boss, the mind is the brilliant student that works for the A student. And that's the way life is around us. All the brilliant positions that you see are all just merely justifications that people say for preconceived notions. If you're a leftist and you're blind to what's going on in the world, you will discover all kinds of rationales and reasons why the policy is no good, and why we got to make peace, whatever it is. You have preconceived notions, and you will justify them with your brilliant mind. So you have to understand that when you see people making decisions, you're dealing with a heart, not a mind. As brilliant as the position is, as logical and as rational as it sounds, it's the heart that's in control, and the mind is merely slavishly following what the heart has predetermined. Therefore, the tremendous musr to learn from this from this from the Egyptians. The Egyptians, yes, mindlessly. By mitzrayim, by Yovawa Kharayim, they mindlessly pursued the Jews Paro El to the middle of the sea. How ridiculous. But that's exactly what they did. They followed their pursuit, their desire, and they ran blindly into the sea. It's a limud musr, godl, the koyches Nefesh, in the power of the human emotion, shalom, kizem, sharot and that his desire, his mindless urge, his drive, shoylut alaseichel, rules over the mind, the heart, the desire rules the mind, varishoyim b'shus liba. It's a statement that Chazal make, and that's really what the essence of the statement is. It says, we find in a number of places by Tzadikim, Medrash says, Tzadikim libo Shusam. The heart of Tzadikim is under their domain. As it says, Vayomer David el-Libo. David said to his heart. Vayomer Hashem, it says when Hashem speaks to his heart, to say let's do this punishment or whatever it is by the by the door marble door so the expression is used by Hashem Elibov el Hashem speaks to his heart by Tadikim by Dovid Dovit by Rishoyim it always uses a different expression by Homon Vilibov and Homon said in his heart by Omer Yosef and Yosef said in his heart in other words Rishoyim Rishus Libo the wicked are under the control of their hearts, their hearts control them. Sadikim control their hearts. Tadikim libam bishusam. Rishoim bishus libom. control their hearts. Rishoim are under the control of their hearts. This is another manifestation of this. That Rishoim bishus libom. and they will therefore use the flimsiest excuse, the weakest reed and straw, El Connor wrote Leis in order not to believe the because their desire is not to believe Shemos, to to feel that God did not do what God did. And as we said earlier, when you add to it, blind hatred ha- hatred, the hatred of Jews, anti Semitism, is such a potent, powerful force that you could go today. And you'll find in Central Europe, and certainly in Eastern Europe, and certainly in Japan, where there are no Jews. And they're looking to hate Jews anyway. But they can't find Jews. I mean, the New York Times has to write on its page two, several days ago, there are two Jews left in Kabul, Afghanistan. I mean, how important is it? No, but they're, they're having an argument. They're having a fight. It becomes page two news in the New York Times. Like, who even cares about two old, cranky Jews? One is older and crankier, and one is younger and cranky, anyway. A middle-aged. Then they're fighting about something or other. They're fighting about a dead community. But oh, this is news that two Jews are fighting each other. I mean, ridiculous. It makes page two news. I mean, they're searching and searching. I mean, hatred of Jews is very, very potent force. So if you want to Hashem just has to send a little bit of a wind to, oh, okay, it's coincidence, let's chase the Jews. That's what it is. Combine these two things, blind hatred of the Jews, and we saw it with Hitler in Mach how his blind hatred of the Jews was enough to mindlessly drive him to his own destruction. That's what Paro did, his blind hatred of the Jews. Certainly there was a certain self-interest involved in Paro's case, that he wanted the Jews as slaves as well. It's enough. And the flimsiest excuse is then enough of a reason to drive the person to his own destruction. That's what happened with Paro, but it learned the lesson of human nature. They'll look for the flimsiest excuse. It was Venus, it was Mars, it was this, it was that. That's enough to make the person drive him to his own oblivion. That's the principle over here, and this is, it tells us a lot about human nature. It tells us a lot about human nature. It also tells us a lot about so-called rational, logical arguments. That when you hear people, they could be brilliant people, and they say the most brilliant things, but ultimately they have the same heart as you and I. And therefore, if if you realize that the heart is dictating, the heart is the dictator, it's dictating their positions, then all of their rational, logical talk becomes meaningless. I mean, the guy sounds like a brilliant scientist, But it's shtus behevel, And they could be the most brilliant lawyers, but OJ is paying them. So the most ridiculous arguments, and they could start overwhelming you with the the most brilliant arguments. But so what? It's not their position. They're being paid for. It's OJ paying them. He's the heart. They're the mind. I, I guess that's the best way to make me think of it. Think of yourself as being four lawyers sitting in your head, and the heart is O.J. Simpson sitting in your heart, and he's paying your brain what to do. Just remember, you have O.J. Simpson sitting in your heart. As brilliant as your mind you think it is, they're under the employ of O.J. Simpson. He's paying the paycheck. That's the way all minds are and hearts. Unless you have and Libam If you work on it, the Torah about. Torah tries to get you to be more in control, control of the heart. That it should be but otherwise and that's the way most of the world operates. And we see another manifestation is that the Egyptians go in, so it's no longer a pellet. How could they be so stupid and foolish to go mindlessly into the sea like that? That's still exactly the way people are. And that's why Hashem, with a little bit of wind, is able to harden their hearts. I don't want to go so much into this principle right now, but the whole idea that Hashem hardened their hearts doesn't necessarily mean that Hashem forced them to go against their will. What He merely did was He toyed and played with human emotion, human nature, very similar to the matador. The matador is standing over here and there's this huge bull that's going to hurl himself at you. and. You have no chance of of staying alive. I mean, you have this, I don't know, whatever it is, this 800-pound raging bull with two sharp horns. And he's coming hurtling at you. And you have 20,000 people standing around the arena watching you. I mean, you're dead meat. That's basically what you are. But you can be confident. Why? Because all I got to do is wave the cape next to me and put a sword behind it. And the bull is not going to go for me. He's going to go for the sword. And the bull is dead meat, literally because I know the nature of the bull. The raging bull that's coming is not gonna go to me, although I am his enemy, and I'm the one that he hates, but I just wave the cape and the movement, I mean, they say they're colorblind, so the red cape doesn't have anything to do with it, but the movement of the cape, whatever it is, I'm toying with bull emotions. And I know bull emotions and bull mentality and bull psychology, and therefore I'm gonna use it to kill him. Did I take away its free will? Did I have to take away its free will? That's the nature of the bull. He's going to run. I just toy with him. God knows human nature. And he just has to toy with them a little bit, put a little wind here, have the Jews go back, look like they're confused, keep Baal Zephon from being destroyed. Oh, that's enough that they can say, oh, Baal Zephon is still alive. That it means it's a powerful God. The Jews are confused. They went back. They're against the thing. Oh, good. We could pursue them. Now they come. They're in hot pursuit. That's human nature. You're in hot pursuit. Oh, the sea splits. Oh, it's a wind. Fine. We go fight That's cool. Machazic lay Power. That's enough. God toys with human emotions. He's going to do it. It always works. Because we show him, Vishus It doesn't have to be a removal of free will. This is, this is the, the human being. This is the premise that we've discussed in the past. I want to just go through it again inside now from Yaakov Kamenetsky. Yaakov Kamenetsky, Parsha's with Aram, says the following. Tapis, Mukeres The whole idea of, of magic, you know, the whole idea of witchcraft, sorcery, the black magic, the black arts, demons, demonic forces, dibuks and the like, we no longer see. What happened to them? where are they? The Shema Nivu, why did they exist? Umadu and Elmun, why did they disappear? Why don't we see them? What happened to all of these magical forces that we hear about but we don't see nowadays? Why did God allow them to exist? Where did they go? And why are they no longer present? Cesar Biakov-Kamenetsky, an important principle, a theological premise, which ties into what we've just been talking about. Elo together with the creation of powerful forces of good and kedusha and purity, there has to be an equal and opposite force of evil and Tuma. Bora Kinegdoi, there has to be an opposite, equal force of Kaardoima,kara Tuma from the forces of Tuma, there has to be an equal and opposite corresponding force it's a postic in that says when God created the world he made it everything should maintain an equilibrium everything should have a corresponding opposite Newton's third law of physics for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction for every motion for every movement that exists in in creation, in the physical universe, there's an opposite force that it acts upon or was acted upon, however the case may be. And therefore, the sum total of everything is still zero. That's the way it works out. If you add up the negative forces with the positive forces, you're back to zero. And therefore, if there's matter, there's antimatter. If there is there's dark energy, whatever they call it in the universe, there's a whole. The universe is composed of opposites. There are positive charges in every atom, and then there are the electrons that are negative charges. Add them together and you're left with zero. They say if matter and antimatter would collide, everything goes to oblivion. I once explained, based on this, another principle, though I don't want to get into this, of what it means, bria-yesh-me-ayin that God created something out of nothing. Of course, there's a lot of theological aspects to this question. What does it mean something out of nothing? There's no nothing. Nothing doesn't exist before creation. There's was only God. So what does it mean God created something out of nothing? But the truth is, the basic element of the universe is nothing. It's zero sum total. What God did was He made a yesh, mayayin. He made something literally out of nothing. In other words, what did the God do? He took nothing and he stretched nothing out into two opposite directions. That's how you have everything. So everything that exists is merely nothingness that was divided and stretched and pulled apart into two opposite fields, a positive and a negative. So you took nothing and you made matter and antimatter, sum total back to zero. You took a positive charge and a negative charge, an electron and a proton. But sum total is zero. When it all collapses and collides, it's back to nothing. So he made literally, yesh, may I, something. What did he make something out of? Not the way we perceive it. He made something when there was nothing. He made literally something out of nothing. He pulled the universe apart. Sum total is back to zero. Ze le'um God created everything that it should be a balance. And this is true in the physical universe as well but in the metaphysical universe it's equally true same principle operates that if there's forces of good it has to be balanced with forces of evil but the reason for that is because to maintain human v'khira, free will there has to be always a balance you can't shift away to one side too too radically over the other because that takes away human free will it's so obvious to you and I that if you see a person on a table and he has a pants on the table and he has this hot metal thing over there and he's ironing it and then they pick it up you will not go over and touch it it's not so obvious to the baby but it is obvious to you and i so we don't have free will when it comes to that because we're too smart the baby's not so smart the baby doesn't understand that he'll touch the hot and we know not to it's so obvious to us you won't put your hand in fire you can't call that free will you're not challenged with constantly not putting your hand in fire. Yet, you are challenged about eating things like candy, even though it eats away at your teeth. You don't see it so much. When it comes to that, we're like babies. You know, when you eat a pastrami sandwich with a lot of mayonnaise, you don't see it clogging up your arteries and the cholesterol there. So you're faced with a challenge, because the pastrami and the mayo is geschmack, And you don't see what's happening inside of your, your arteries you have a challenge because of your lack of, of foresight and insight and whatever you want to call it you have a challenge we're like babies with the iron in the oven so in order to maintain Bukhira things can't be so obviously weighed in one direction versus the other so therefore there has to be a that there has to be balance of forces of good and evil that, that are um, coexisting simultaneously if it would be an imbalance there would be no as a result in the era of miracles in an era of prophecy when there were navim amongst the Jews and there were supernatural miracles there had to be a balance of opposing forces which is what the forces of witchcraft and, and these dark forces are all about that could fool people into following them as a counterbalance we find that's exactly what, what, what Eliyahu Novi told the people you can't follow God and the Baal it's one or the other and we find later on he says don't straddle the fence in the middle we find later on also that Yirmiyahu Novi told some of the women that were sacrificing and, and burning incense to the hosts of the heaven. He's saying, why are you doing this? Don't you see that there's a drought? How can you do something which is so blatantly against your own, uh, your own interest? And he said, what are you telling us foolish stuff? It's all because we don't do it this is why we have the drought. From the time that we stop worshipping properly the forces, the hosts of the heavens, that's when all this occurred. Because they had to see and perceive an opposite balance to God. There's God, he makes miracles, he makes drought, but there's also all bizarre. And therefore, in an era of miracles, has to be an era of magic. In an era of prophecy, there have to be false prophets. But false prophets in the sense that they seem to be... Now, the greater the miracle, the greater the powers of the forces of evil and the forces of Tulum. The greater the Novi the greater his counterbalance. For that reason, in Moshe Rabbeinu's era, which was the era of the greatest manifestation of divine power and might, there had to be some balance by giving even stronger forces to witchcraft and sorcery. That's why Egypt, which witnessed the greatest miracles, had to have at least a perceived... I mean, again, the Raman doesn't really believe in magic anyway. But he's a minority opinion. The overwhelming majority of the Rishonim believed that, that these things were genuine and real and weren't just sleight of hand. But that's really irrelevant for our purposes, for our point. Because it doesn't really matter if it actually existed or was perceived to actually exist. The point is that the maintenance and the balance of the b'chiram is only maintained if at least people see it as a reality, whether it was a reality. Or merely a perceived reality is irrelevant. The point is that's what the balance is, that's at least perceived as a reality. So therefore, the greatest miracles, there has to be the greatest power of witchcraft or perceived witchcraft. Now Moshe was also the greatest Navi. Coincidentally, therefore, we find coinciding with Moshe's existence was Bilam. Notice how Bilam made it into the Torah as well. Moshe made Torah's Moshe, and Bilam is the Parsha Bilam. Coinciding with the existence of a Moshe Rabbeinu as a Novi, there was its counterpart, its counterbalance, its nemesis, its opposite, equal, Bilam. So Bilam served as the balance, as the counterbalance, or the counterpoint to Moshe's existence. Therefore, in an era of prophecy and miracles, there had to be witchcraft Navodazar that could fool the people. Kasher Poska Navuavad now what happened was, again I don't want to dwell on it in the era of the Anshei Knessa Godola they prayed for the destruction of the Yetzir Hora for Avodah Zara. and it was removed they were successful, the Kabbar and Yuma says that they davened for the removal of the Yetzir Hora for Avodah Zara and, and that's exactly what happened however, the Anshei Godola was also the last era of prophets There were no longer prophets after the era of the Anshaknes HaGadolam. Furthermore, there was no longer Tar Shebiksav. No longer was there Nevuah Ksuven. They were the last era that sealed the Tanakh. After the era of the Anshaknes HaGadolam, the beginning of the Second Temple period, there was no longer Nevuah. there was no longer Tar Shebiksav, there was no longer Divine Revelation, there was no longer, you know, Scripture. They sealed the scripture. They lost it. In the era of the loss of Avodah Zarah, you can't have Nevoah, because the balance is not going to be maintained. However, we do find in the Gemara the Second Temple era, there were at least not major miracles, but lesser ones. And they still had the Ruach Hakodesh, divine inspiration. They still had what's called the Baskol. At that point, there was also demonic forces like Shadim and Ruchos still existed and therefore although there was the era still of of miracle workers there was still in that era Shadim and there was still in that era these demonic forces on the lesser scale in other words people could still believe in either the balance is still being maintained they could still find something the generations got weaker and weaker and the supernatural or the magical forces both weaken concurrently till we come to our generation and in our generation physicality and the material world dominates everything we live in an era of where the physical reigns supreme you don't see any manifestations of the supernatural the balance of the forces of good, nor the forces of evil the equilibrium is still being maintained. The more supernatural forces on one side, the more you have to have the other. The less one side has, the more it's weakened, the more the other side is weakened. Till finally if one disappears, the other disappears. And that's the year that we live in. But the principle behind all of this is the concept of maintaining the challenge of the equal balance therefore therefore at a time when Moshe is being sent to Paro to show him the hand of God with signs and wonders there had to be some sort of an equal and opposite force that could at least be a fig leaf for denial in order that Bukhira should be maintained therefore Moshe Rabbeinu comes bigger miracles, so they do either sleight of hand or magic, whatever The smaller all it was, it was enough to retain the balance of free will as the same principle that you find by going into the Yama the wind that was there was enough to give a fig leaf justification for them to continue to pursue the Jews the magic of the Khartoumim, of the magicians of Egypt was enough to maintain the balance and to give them a fig leaf of denial And that's all it needs. It needs the weakest read, the weakest justification, but you need something to maintain the balance of Bukhira. And this is a principle through all generations. Nowadays as well as the olden days this is a very important principle that balance has to be maintained in order that there should be Bukhira, free will and choice and therefore you need justification for everything and you need this kind of a balance. As a result forces of good are balanced with forces of evil scientific justification for one side versus the other could you imagine they, you know it used to be denial always meant the eternity of the universe up until about a hundred years ago to deny God's existence meant that the universe always existed but if you prove Chidusha Olam <laughs> was always the basic premise that the Rambam and others fought very hard to prove in order that once you have the creation of the world that's already enough to have belief in God all of a sudden hundred years ago they were able to come up with a theory of the creation of the world but they called the Big Bang and you're still able to maintain even after you have the proof been more or less able to prove this idea with, with a certain amount of whatever it is uh, unimportant to get into what the scientific proofs are but the proof of the The Big Bang of the creation of the universe rests on very solid evidence that at this point, practically no scientist who's a scientist is denying the creation of the world. yet, the balance is still being maintained that you could be an atheist. You could believe in the creation of the world, but not in the creator. The world created itself out of nothing. And it's a Because the Big Bang theory goes with a lot of the same principles as creation namely that before there was real nothingness and then there was that moment of Yom Echad the creation of life which they refer to as the singularity Yom Echad, very similar to what it says in the Chumash, rather than calling it the first day of creation the Torah calls it Yom Echad the one day of creation and Chazal emphasized that the Torah calls it Yom Echad rather than Yom Rishon because there was a unique and singular moment so they refer to that first day of creation as well, as a singularity, as a Yom Echod. So they're willing to accept the principle of creation of Chidush olam, of Bria, of Bria Yesh and of Yom Echod, singularity. So where did it all come from? Who did the creating? It created itself out of nothing. The world literally created itself out of nothing. And it'll give you all kinds of philosophical and and cosmological explanations of how this could be or can't be. But the balance is still being maintained. You could still deny God. A hundred years ago you couldn't. If you could prove that point, you wouldn't deny God. Until nowadays, now we have the science and we're able to deny God even though we accept the premise of Hiddush Olam and Berea. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. But the balance is always maintained. So we wonder at the Egyptians for being foolish enough to run into the Yam because of a wind but they could wonder at our foolishness oh you believe in Chidush Olam but you don't believe in the Creator? you believe in the creation of Bria but not a Boreh? isn't that foolish? the regeneration but it's always the heart the heart rules Rishoyim Nishus Libam and the heart rules and the mind is merely the slave of the heart we come up with our own positions that our heart wants we then use the brain to justify those positions and that's part of the principle that God made creation with a balance to maintain the Bahira. Paro always had the Bahira based on this premise. In Egypt, the Khartoumim were the cause of the fig leaf in the Yam Suf it was the wind that caused the fig leaf. It's interesting that it almost mimics the evolution of human society whereby in the olden days, it was magic that maintained the, the equilibrium. And nowadays, it's science and the wind that maintains the equilibrium. So power graduated from the magic of Egypt to the wind. In Egypt, oh, magic, huh? You have magic, we have magic. By the Yamsuf, there's no longer magic anymore. Magic did it. It wasn't magic. Oh, it was the wind that did it. It was science that did it. So power ascribes the Yamsuf Yams to science. He ascribes the Makos to magic. Same thing. That's what the world has been over the past several thousand years. Then they ascribe it to magic. Now they ascribe it to science. But the heart doesn't want to recognize God. And if it doesn't want to, it will not recognize God. It will justify it any which way. The balance of the Bukhira is maintained. But it tells us a very important lesson about human emotion and human nature. Let's... the possek says ozi vzimros ko vahili my strength my song my praise is Hashem He's my salvation ze keli elokei ovi v'aromemenu let's focus on the ze van v'anveyu if we have time we'll then go to the elokei ovi v'aromemenu later veyu What does it mean, vanvehu? So the Gemara derives from this certain lessons about how to beautify mitzvahs, vanvehu, from the word noi, which means beauty. Either it means I will sing and recite God's beauty and praise, or I'll beautify the mitzvahs. Unklus translates it a little differently. Unklus translates it as an abode. Zekeli van Veyu. Very interestingly, Uncle's translates. If you look on top of page one ninety eight, Dein elokai," this is my God, the Evnele Magdishah, and I will build for him a base of Mikdash So van Veyu comes from the root of of a place and the boat. What does this mean over here? The Jews are saying at this point, "Zeh van veil, uncle's rarely deviates from shop She's so saying, "This is my God, and I will build Him an abode. I will build Him a base hamigdash." What does that do to the Oz They're singing about the praises of God and His power and might, and in the middle they go, "This is my God. I'm going to build Him a base hamigdash." A mishkan. They go into building the mishkan after martin Torah, but that was. All because of other reasons. Why at this moment did they get this inspiration to build the base of Mikdash? What does this mean? This is another very important lesson about human emotion. Very important lesson. Bottom left. Unkel is tear game de ne lokai Mikdash or Makdashah. Pirish. Why they now decide this based on Important rule about human nature again. And this teaches us how we have to capitalize on human nature and utilize it for the good. This is the principle that we said before. That Sadiqim Libo The fact is that we know how the heart operates. We said earlier. But it's better to control the heart rather than the heart should control you. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that a tzaddik has no emotion. It doesn't mean that. A tzaddik has emotions like everybody else. But he realizes that he realizes the power of his emotions. And rather than have the emotions control him, he controls it and subverts the heart, so to speak, diverts it for good causes. Rather than the heart diverting his brain, he diverts his heart. The other day when, you know, whatever it is, it happens all the time, but you get angry or you get angry at your children or you want to discipline. It should be controlled. It doesn't mean that you don't get angry, you do get angry. But it should never be that your rage controls you and that's why you're angry. It's you decide, this is right, this is wrong. Okay, I will now allow my emotions to, to come out and as a result I'm going to act a certain way. But you have to be in full control over your emotions. And part of that message is that you have to capitalize on inspiration and realize the shortcomings of the human heart and make amends and adjust things accordingly to the known shortcomings of the human heart. And that's what Umklus teaches us over here. Omnum Klaulgodluba void This is a rule when it comes to divine service. Miyad to immediately implement at the time of inspiration the Rochem Lishmor ways to retain and maintain and sustain, well, you realize how poetic I could become, these inspirations. You have to retain, maintain, and sustain inspiration. Because with time, this is human nature, with time, you have the right inspirations whatever achievement and advancement you have will dissipate Dissipate. at the time of the splitting of the sea they, they desired that their feelings of inspiration the floor that their great inspiration and their great uh, levels of achievement that they were risen to, that even the maid servant saw greater visions of divine revelation than the greatest of prophets. Tamshich lohora as da'akum should also retain some sort of a, um, a future, some sort of a future retaining of this, of this light therefore they took upon themselves that they should forever be able to have a connection to the divine this is a truism in human nature I mean, every rabbi tries to capitalize on it every fundraiser every dinner every yeshiva dinner well I don't know about all yeshiva dinners but it used to be you know that it had the pledge cards in the shuls right so you should pledge in the shul when the rabbi says his sermon the idea of course was that the sermon should be very powerful, inspirational and you're going to wind up writing a check by making a commitment and a pledge greater than you otherwise would because if we wait 24 hours it's going to be gone 24 hours later, it's gone. This we know is, of course, true about everything. The Torah teaches this to us in a number of places. For example, one example was that after that great display of might of God by Elio, when he took the prophets of the Baal, there were arrayed against them, over 400 of them, and they did whatever they could for the Baal and Eliyahu Novi single-handedly shows a a stupendous display of divine interference and intervention and the people were amazed how amazed were they? they all fell on their faces and they said Hashem Hu they immediately went out and they slaughtered all the 400 prophets of the Baal it's like we know after there's a terrorist attack in Israel israel's being given a window of opportunity of about twenty four to forty eight hours whatever you do no one's going to criticize after forty eight hours the sympathy is down and criticism is back unfortunately they can't figure out what to do in twenty four to forty eight hours to wipe them out other than to nuke them but that's the problem you got a window of twenty four to forty eight hours that people are subdued and sympathetic and they wake up after two mornings of waking up, you wake up next morning you feel less morning after that you're, it's already gone, it's dissipated it's like that in human nature so what does Izevel say to Elio Novi? she saw that Eliyahu HaNovi won this round so he won the battle but he said, but you're going to lose the war in 24 hours I'm going to be after you to kill you why 24 hours? why not now? now she can't do anything he just made this huge display that the people said, HaShemuel well, okim you have to realize when they said, HaShemuel well, okim, they were saying the same thing that we recite Yom Kippur by Ni'ilah. We've excerpted the Hashem Hu'alokim that the people said then <coughs> to become the climax of Yom Kippur. The climax of Yom Kippur <coughs> is the Ni'ilah services and the climax of the Ni'ilah services is the last Shma Yisrael Hashem Hu'alokim, Hashem Hashem the climax of Neelah. That's what the people said after they witnessed what Elianovvi did. Yet, Isevel was confident that in 24 hours I could do whatever I want. And Elianovvi recognized that she was right and he had to flee. He fled. He ran away. Why? That's human nature. That you could take the highest levels of inspiration and 24 hours later it could be gone, 48 hours later it's certainly gone, that's gone. The wise person knows to capitalize on these moments of inspiration to do something that will be retained and lasting and permanent. Because otherwise it's gone. We've discussed this many times, Richard, how you go to some classes or here and you're inspired and you're going to do this and that, but a month later it's gone. It always dissipate, dissipates. Why? Because that's human nature. That's the way human nature is with a lot of people. But it's part of the principle of Risho and Bishos Libum that we're dominated by our hearts Not our minds. The wise person realizes that he has a heart and he has to control it. He also has to realize that generally the heart controls it. So one aspect of the Torah is to put the heart into subservience to the mind, place it in its realm that it deserves and let the mind dominate. But it doesn't negate the power of the heart, it understands the power of the heart and says, aha. When you're inspired, capitalize on it and do something of lasting value, of permanent, uh, of permanent elevation. When it comes to, you hear an inspired thing and people write out bigger checks. Later on, they look at their checkbooks and well, go, boy, that's how much I gave that, you know, like, Why did I do that? But at the time, it sounded good, and therefore you gave up. You, you know, they know how to capitalize on this that's knowing how to capitalize on human emotions but it's not necessarily a bad thing if it's for a worthy cause so you take advantage of people's hearts and inspirations and you capitalize on it to make it something permanent literally to build a base of English. you know the, the shul or the Shiva is having a building campaign okay you inspire everybody, they're singing songs of praise okay write out the check for the building fund that's what it says over here Zek van veyu alokai I'm going to build a base of Mikdash. Capitalize on it. The Jews understood that point. And really the essence of building the base of Middash was that they wanted to build something that was going to have a sustained, permanent connection to them that will constantly inspire them. That's the point of why they wanted a base of Mikdash. The base of Mikdash was the place of Hashras Hashchina, it was the place where they wanted to build that was going to cause Hashem to descend to the world and have a revealed relationship where they were going to draw constant divine inspiration and constant Ruach HaKodesh that's why they wanted precisely a of mikdash. so this moment where they could say Haley, we see we have a revelation from God that's so overwhelming let's try to capitalize on it and maintain some of it in fact not only did they realize the truism of this but it actually follows in the Psukim itself. Chazal say that the maidservant saw by Kriyas Yamsuf greater revelation than the greatest of prophets Yacheskul ben Buzi saw when he saw the divine chariot. So then if that's the case, so does that make the maidservant a greater prophet a greater person than Yachal? Certainly not. Why? Because she retained her maidservant status because the next day she was back to sweeping the floors Cheskel ben Buzi has this revelation but he's a prophet he earned that level of revelation not only did he earn it he retained it and maintained it afterwards he he was still a prophet before the vision and after the vision yes he saw a vision after the vision he was still the same prophet the maid on the other hand saw a greater vision but so what? after the greater vision she went back to being a maid she lost it whatever inspiration was there was lost the Jews as a whole in a sense lost the same thing right after Kriya Siyam it took all three days and they're murmuring and complaining again three days later so with all the great miracle, with all the great inspiration three days later they're back to complaining they're back to complaining three days later because they lost it but they understood the concept the concept that you're going to lose it, that it's inevitably there, means that you have to take countermeasures to offset your loss of inspiration. Therefore, they said, the only way we can do that is by building a base Hamikdash. At the moment of inspiration, they committed themselves to the base Hamikdash. There was a commitment based on a capitalization of their inspiration. Because they were now inspired and they knew they were going to lose it, they said, now's the time to capitalize on it and they came up with a solution that will retain some semblance of their inspiration in the perpetuating of this revelation through the Beis Amikdash. Again, this is a lesson of the human heart. By the same token, let's take a look at the last piece on the right on the bottom, which deals with an aspect that we find at the end of the Parsha. At the end of the Parsha we know that that the people had certain you know, um, setbacks. They started remembering and complaining, they were thirsty, hungry, and at one point they even tested God, they complained, and that's when Amolay came to do battle with them because their faith was weakened I'll tell us as they weakened themselves from their faith they weakened themselves from the study of the Torah and that's when Amalek finds his way of wedging himself in Amalek, of course was a battle against the jewish ideal rather than jewish lives Power, at least had some vested self-interest involved in pursuing the jews not so Amalek. Amalek was went on the offensive was they hated the Jews. It doesn't describe any reason why Amalek attacked them. We, it's self-evident why Paro did what Paro did. It's even self-evident later on in all the other wars why they were there. Moab, Midian, we understand some of it. Midian is a little bit less understandable, but whatever it is, we understand some of it. But what is Amalek? Why are they babbling the Jews? Well, Amalek, of course, became the eternal enemy of the Jews. That's why God says, Amalek is the eternal enemy because their enmity and hatred of the Jews is what propelled them to, to do battle here though we find something very unique especially in the parish when you contrast it with the with, with the enemy of power of power had an army a very powerful army, in fact power's army was really the mightiest army of its era and here power is pursuing the Jews and the Jews are are rightly scared of them. And what was the passage that we quoted? Hashem, Yilochem, lochem, God will battle on your behalf. Batem, Tachrishon. You stand still and just watch. You'll be spectators. Hashem, Yilochem, lochem, Hashem will do battle for you. In the Ozioshe, we therefore find that the Jews said, Hashem, Ishmael Choma, God is the man of war. God does battle. Here by Amalek, we find the exact opposite. Hashem tells him, Hashem tells Moshe, and Moshe tells Yoshua, it's on the last page really of the of the Parsha, 205, 206. Ayur Moshe Yeshua page two oh six, last page, Vitsei Hilochheim Bamolek, and go do battle and war with Amalek. Now it's interesting when you contrast it. When it comes to the Egyptians, it says, Hashem Elohim Lochem, God will battle on your behalf. Here it says, Say ba Bamolek, go out. Go out and pursue Amalek and do battle against Amalek. Why against the Egyptians, Hashem Elohim Lochem? And against Amalek, say ba Bamolek, go out and aggressively pursue battle and do war against Amalek. Why this difference? says the paradise Yosef on the lower right it says it says that you do nothing where it's almost like a command of God Hashem will do battle, you do nothing and here there's this added um, you know encouragement go do battle Territ says Again, this teaches us human emotion and it tells us how to sometimes counter human emotion. It's the nature that when it comes to mundane matters, we naturally feel inclined to do for ourselves. We're fearful, we do for ourselves. That's precisely where you're supposed to have bitokhen and faith in Hashem. That's where you need bitokhen. Namely, Shashem Yisborach, Yishlach, SS Rosso, that Hashem will send somehow help. If we look around today, at today's situation, at least in the land of Israel, there does not seem to be any way out of the situation. There's no good way out. I mean, yes, it would seem that uh, Zivi was right, and maybe expelling all the Arabs is the way to go. It doesn't seem to be a... a... Uh, un- what? It 's not a feasible solution it doesn't seem to that it's going to work because it just won't no one's going to let it happen I don't think it's an immoral solution it's not immoral, but it's not, it's not going to be practical it won't be able to be done you can't, uh, you can't throw out all the, you can't expel all the Palestinians. Could they have done it 25 years ago 30 years ago after the six-day war yes after the six-day war they probably could have done it with minimal damage in terms of world opinion and um, my take on what would have happened had they have done that is that the population in Jordan would have been more than just 60 percent Palestinian, which it is today, would have been like 80 percent Palestinian and in the 70's when there was a war between the Palestinians and the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan King Hussein, they would have won. The Palestinians would have won they would have overthrown the Jordanian monarchy and there would have been a Palestinian state in Jordan which would have at least taken away some of the moral force of their argument about their homelessness and their statelessness true they would have been an enemy uh, country but like any other enemy country they could be pacified for their own self-interest Syria is a mortal enemy of the Jews yet they don't attack Israel Iran and Iraq are certainly mortal enemies of the Jews and of Israel, but they still don't attack. Egypt, all those years was also a mortal enemy, even before Camp David, maybe even afterwards. But they don't attack. Jordan would have been a mortal enemy, but they could live with it. They'd have a defensible border the the Jordan River. As to the damage and the repercussions in the world, it would have been shortly lived. You know, people, it takes time, and eventually it would have been over Certainly by now it would be over and done with but Israel did not take advantage of that window of opportunity to expel the Palestinians. They want to have good relations with them. So we're faced with the situation that we are today, and it's almost impossible to see a way out of it. When you're faced with those kinds of situations, that's when you have to have me talking. Ain We have no one to rely upon but God in heaven. And we're kind of in that kind of a matzah right now, today there doesn't seem to be a viable way out of the situation you still have to maintain an army and you still have to be diligent in security and you still have to use diplomatic as well as military approaches, no question but in terms of your your feelings and emotions you certainly don't give up hope but you also can't have confidence that you could in your own way come up with a solution and therefore each of us have to feel and realize that despite whatever Israel has to do for itself and they should but we have no one to count on and no real good way out other than God's gonna have to come up with some way whether it's an open miracle or a hidden miracle whether it's Mashiach or some other form of salvation whether it's a natural or supernatural Hashem is gonna be the only avenue that we have to come out of this the Jews now in that sense are comparable to the Jews by the Egyptians by Paro their backs were to the wall they were surrounded on all sides they had the midbar and they had the pillars of wherever they were surrounding them to the right and to the left behind them was the sea, in front of them was the Egyptian army that was basically ambushing them and they were in a very dire predicament that's the time you'd cry out to Hashem you have faith and confidence in Hashem and Hashem responds God will fight, God will do it you remain still have faith for your own needs that God will provide where you don't say that and this is the crucial point most people aren't aware of so therefore you have to have confidence in Hashem and that's when you have to realize that that human the human uh, effort, endeavor, will not help you. Luma But, opposite this, the nikush shalmavuk l'manyadus, when it comes to battling for the forces of good, for the forces of Judaism and for God, that's not where you have bitokhan. That's a very crucial lesson. Most people don't think of it. Oh, God will take care of his own needs. Yeah, what's well, going to be with the Yiddish guy? God will provide. No. That's where there's no bitokhan. B'tochan is for your needs. For God's needs, you gotta provide. He'll provide your needs for your needs. You have to provide his needs for his things. And therefore a battle for God is not where you have Bitochun. Aimless <laughs> mokh albitochen, Kim Khoi as Kola Nitin we're obligated to do whatever we can, even to fight battle, even to fight war, even to fight battles, <laughs> with all of our might and all of our strength. The war of Amalek, as we said, symbolizes the war of evil against good. It's an eternal struggle of the forces of evil against the forces of good. The battle of Amalek is a battle of wickedness, denial of God, anti Torah, anti God against Jewish belief and faith. That's the time that you don't say Atem tacharish, and that you remain still and you remain silent. You don't remain still, you don't remain silent. who you stop the to be talking and say, oh, God will take care of it. Kim that's the time you got to get up, rise to the occasion, and do battle. Purim, we know, was a time when they dove to Hashem. Hanukkah was a time when they did battle. Chanukah was a time when even though the forces seemed overwhelmingly arrayed against them, they got up and they did battle. They they went out and they pursued the battle against superior forces, against overwhelming odds. Purim, they cried out and they davened to Hashem. Purim, as we know, was when the Jews were in dire need and they were in a dangerous situation in a dire predicament. Chanukah, they weren't physically endangered, but they were spiritually endangered. The lesson of Hanukkah is that when it comes to battles of spirituality, you don't rely on bitochen, but you get up and you do battle. When it comes to physical well-being and material well-being, you have to have faith in Hashem. The Parsha, therefore, contrasts both of these things. In the beginning of Parsha, we have Egypt as the enemy. At the end of the Parsha, we have Amalek as the enemy. Two forces that are enemies of the Jews who raid against each other and the response is different the response in one is Hashem Ilochem Ilochem Baatem Tacharishun you remain still and God will do battle miraculously and the response in the other is say Lohem. go out and fight and do battle why the difference because one is physical endangerment we have to have faith in Hashem the other is fighting the wars of God on behalf of God That's where you have to do Jihad, as they call it. Holy war. There's holy war, and then there's war war for survival. We need a sense, and, and again, because the human emotion is the exact opposite. That's the point. The human heart works in the opposite direction. It tends to tell you that, oh, God's problems, God will take care of it. What's going to be with Jewish continuity? What's going to be with the future of Judaism and Torah? God will provide Hashem Yazar, God will help. When it comes to your own well, what do you mean? God helps those who help themselves and you gotta go out and you gotta struggle in that. Right? When it comes to Parnosa, people lack me talk. You gotta do it yourself. When it comes to spirituality, it's different. You know, you're gonna go send your kid to a summer camp or a winter vacation. You provide well just in case it rains, you gotta have this, in case it snows, you're gonna have that. You provide him with clothes because for his physical well being. And certainly, if he goes off to a dangerous situation, you provide him with whatever it is. Yet, when it comes to his graduating from high school and you want to send him to an Ivy League college, and they say, yeah, but you see what's going on on college campuses these days? Oh, well, God will help. It's okay. You send him off with no spiritual protection whatsoever. And you say, what's going to be with his future, with his future spirituality? God will help. Hashem Yazar, God will provide. It's just the opposite. When it comes to spiritual things, that's when you have to take the things, and you have to take the initiative in your own hands. When it comes to the physical, but the human heart works the other way. When it comes to the material and the physical, we do it ourselves. When it comes to the spiritual, we leave it up to God. And the reason, of course, is because when you have vested self-interest, you want to do it, and you don't have to be talking. When it comes to spiritual things, that don't matter as much, you leave it up to God. It's just a way of saying, I don't care. It's a nice way of saying, I don't care. God will take care of it but we should care we have to care and it's our responsibility to care god will provide our needs but we have to get up and take the initiative when it comes to spiritual matters so battle against paro hashemi lochem lochem atem a battle against Amolik tzevi lochem you go out and do battle that's a very important lesson as well again it relates to the nature of human being